1976, my father took an early retirement, and my mom and dad moved from Indiana to Florida. And they had a friend of mine who was a member of the church there in Brandon build a house for them. His name is Gary Ricketts. And I tell you the story because this was an amazing house. Um, they lived in it for 33 years. And during those 33 years, that house never needed a new roof. It never needed a new air conditioning system. Never needed any plumbing work. It never needed to have the carpet or tile replaced. It never needed painting on the inside or outside. In fact, it never in 33 years ever need any maintenance at all. Wouldn't you love to have a house like that? Now, I can see the expressions on some of your faces. You're like, really? That doesn't sound believable. You know why it doesn't sound believable? Because none of what I said is true. <coughs> In fact, most of you thought that can't be right. But here is something that's kind of amazing. Of course, what I just told you is ridiculous. But how many people think they can be married for 33 years and their marriage never needing maintenance? That it never needs any repair. It never needs any upkeep. It never needs any help and improvement in their relationship or change or growth or or they need any tools to work on their marriage or their family structure or their children you know just as a house needs repair and maintenance improvement so do our relationships and our families and our homes and our marriages so this morning i want to begin a series of lessons entitled home improvement and this series is going to be a little different in some ways. One thing, so we don't draw this out quite so many weeks, I'm going to have some Sundays where I do two lessons in a, in a day. And so tonight we're going to come back with the second lesson. So if you want to get all this series, you're going to have to come to both Sunday morning and Sunday night uh, to get all of this. And I hope, I hope that you will. But I want to say something to you about this series. There's a lot of reasons why I'm bringing it. One, because I think all homes and families need maintenance. We need enrichment. We need repair. We need help from time to time. But recently, the elders passed out a survey and asked for suggestions, not only in classes, but on sermon topics. And one of the things that I noticed this year, and it was true of last year as well, was there a number of suggestions that had to do with marriage, with family, with rearing children, uh, with things that had to do with the home, that had to do with relationships. And I thought that we'll just go ahead and start tackling some of those right away. In fact, in this series, uh, we're going to encapsulate some things, some other kinds of suggestions. Um, forgiveness was one of the things. Anger management was one of the things. I think something in that regard on the survey. So we're going to cover a lot of things that you have requested that you want to hear preached about or talked about or studied about even in classes. And so we begin this series this morning on home improvement. We're glad you're in our number. If you're a guest, we hope that you'll come back with us on other occasions. If you, if you live in the area, I hope you'll come back for all these lessons because they're vital lessons, they're practical lessons, they're biblical lessons. They're lessons that will help us. And every time I do any kind of a series or study on the home, I'm reminded of something about the Bible. You know, the Bible is a different kind of book than books that men write. 
You can go down to your local Christian bookstore and you can buy a book on marriage, on parenting, on the home, on different things about relationships, and it'll have it all broken down into chapters in that book. Where is the section in the Bible on home and family? There's not a section, is there? You can't turn to one book in the Bible. Now, there are some books that have it, like Ephesians 5 and 6, or some things there, or Colossians 3, and scattered through. But you don't have one section on, all right, here's the home and family section. Here's how we deal with this. You, you don't have that. But what we do have, Peter said, we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I believe that. I believe God has given us everything that pertain to life and godliness. And Paul said, we... The Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we typically take that passage, and that was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and apply it to work, worship, and organization of the church. It occurred to me one day that that passage applies to everything that pertains to life and godliness. That, that applies to our lives. That applies to everything that we do, not just our corporate worship or our collective work of the church it applies to home and family and so when we study home family marriage and relationships we kind of got to go through the bible and look at principles and we got to look at different things that the bible has to say that will help us in an understanding of how we improve in our home lives so in this first lesson we just want to talk about some introductory thoughts in the beginning and I, I chose that, you'll see why as we get later into the lesson, why I call it In the Beginning, there is a relevance to that title. But in the beginning, I want us to think about why this is needed. Why do we need a lesson on the home? Why have you suggested that? I don't know why you've suggested it, but I know there are some reasons. Because we have an invasion of individualism in our homes today. You might write beside that the word selfishness. We have a problem with selfishness. And I'm not talking so much here about the worth and the dignity of individuals or the importance of individual needs, which we'll talk about needs later. But I'm talking here about a social and an ethical philosophy that stresses the importance of the individual above society or any other group, even such as the home. It is an attitude that says, I am my own God. It's all about me. And this, this way of selfishness, of course, is not anything that is new. In fact, I have been attending seminars and reading books over the years, and that anybody that's done any study to home, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, will tell you that that's one of the big problems. Dr. Paul Faulkner who for years, along with Dr. Carl Burkeen, has done seminars on the home and family and wrote a very fine book, Whatever Happened to Mom, Dad, and the Kids, said in his book, Selfishness is the single greatest enemy of a happy marriage. Selfishness is at the root of all other sins. And I think that's right. Selfishness or individualism says, I live for myself. I am my own standard. Now, this is nothing new because in Judges 21 and 25, it said in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when individualism invades a family, you can't have unity and love 
and mutual self-sacrifice that God wants. You're not going to have the kind of interaction we're going to talk about later in this series between the husband and the wife that God has decreed because you're going to do what's right in your own eyes. That's individualism. That's selfishness. Another reason why this series is needed is because of the encroachment of secularism. Secularists believe that religious considerations should be excluded from the civil affairs of life and from public education. It is a philosophy that says that life can be better lived and the universe better understood outside of any supernatural considerations. It says that God is unnecessary. I didn't look this up, but it, it's been a lot of years ago, maybe in 30 years ago. Florida College had a lectureship on humanism. Now, some of you may remember that, even if you didn't go to that down there, because almost all the preachers that went to that lecture series came back and preached lessons about a year on humanism. <laughs> I, I know I did. But I probably haven't preached any series or of lessons on humanism for a long, long time. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this lesson this morning and thinking about these three points, and I'm going to talk about why this is needed, that what I'm talking about is humanism. And if I don't have a blank there in your sermon notes. If you want to just write that in there, humanism, just go ahead and do that. Now, you may say, well, I don't know what that is. Have you ever heard of the American Humanist Association? Probably most of but just, just for the fun, how many of you ever heard of the American Humanist Association? Two, two, three, four, five, a few people, a few people. You know, if you're an educator, you should know about it because John Dewey, who's sometimes been called the father of modern education, was one of the early presidents of the American Humanist Association and the National Education Association, I'm sorry, teachers and educators, is filled with a lot of the tenets and principles of Deweyism and the idea of humanism. And the American Humanist Association is an organization, and I'm quoting here from the website, that advances an anti-Christianity, secular humanist philosophy of life without theism or other supernatural beliefs. Now, that's what the humanists are about. I used to go down every once in a while when I preached something that alluded to this. You know, one of these bookstores that has like a thousand magazines of stuff you've never heard of. And one of them is put, that's called The Humanist. And uh, they, they, they still publish that. And it's, it's been published for years and years. Well, now I don't have to waste my money buying one to keep up with what they're writing. Now they have a website. And you can go to The Humanist website and it's incredible. Of all the things that the humanist organization, there's a chapter right here in Dallas. I mean, they're all over the United States. Now, we don't hear about it. The news didn't report it because the news is in bed with these people, with this philosophy. The, the news media promotes a secular, humanistic kind of an idea. Let me just tell you how, how serious this is and how, how pervasive that this is all about. The Humanist in 1933 published the manifesto, and then they came back 40 years later in 1973 and called it Humanist Manifesto Number 2. I have a copy of it in my library. 
This manifest, most of these manifestos were signed by hundreds, hundreds of university presidents, scholars, professors, writers, some ministers, uh, politicians, and other people of influence. Now, here is the humanist idea. Tell me, just think about this, if this doesn't characterize our culture and society today. We believe that the traditional, and I'm quoting now from the manifesto, the traditional dogmatic authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. We find insufficient evidence for believing the existence of the supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant. Another one says, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Another part of this says, there's no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. And that's just a few things about religion. On ethics, the Humanist Manifesto says, we affirm, now listen to this, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stands from human needs and interest. You wonder why we're in the moral mess we're in today? We've been driven by that for years, probably 70 years or so. And humanism is a threat to our families. One humanistic writer in the Humanist magazine wrote, most marriage partners need more diversity and sex interplay than they can give each other and should therefore have ample contacts with friends of the opposite sex outside the family circle. Another powerful force in this movement, Dr. Mary Calderon, said an extramarital affair that's really solid might have really good results. Now, I know for you and I to hear that, that sounds so ridiculous and absurd that anyone could think that. Humanist Randolph Durkins, in his book, The Challenge of Marriage, proposes abolishing marriage as we know it. And those are just a few. I could, I could read more of them. I'm not going to take time to do this. You see, secularism has gotten a hold of our culture and invaded our families today. Reminds me of Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? About the Gentile world where Paul wrote, because they knew, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up in cleanliness and the lust of their hearts through dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Let me stop there. Three times in Romans 1, Paul uses the expression, God gave them up. Man is in pretty sad state of affairs when God gives up. But God gave them up to those things. And they exchanged the truth of the God, God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And amen. It's nothing new. But we are in the midst of a very secular society. And all that we have seen, same-sex marriage and a breaking down of any kind of moral code, it's a part of the humanist philosophy, and they've been at work for years. 
Why is it needed? Because of the intrusion of relativism. And that's a part of all of this as well, that, that truth is not absolute, that truth varies. Uh, it's relative to the culture. And we become very pragmatic because we look at things that if it works, then it must be right. And the problem is a thing may work in the short term that has some very long-term serious consequences. It's a philosophy that says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're honest and sincere. And yet the Bible teaches the truth is narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we're facing today. And this is what our children are facing. And in, in many cases in school systems today, the teachers, whether it's in philosophy classes or not, it didn't have to be. A quote just, uh, just came to my mind, I can't tell you off the top of my head who said it, that it was out of one of the humanist writings that one of the humanist writers encouraged educators to be an evangelist, and that's the word he used, for the humanist way of thinking. And he, he said, it, and he's, he's telling this to teachers, he said it didn't make any difference whether you're teaching math or science or literature or whatever it is, that you need to be an evangelist for this way of thinking. You see, the humanists don't want religion in the schools because what they want is the religion of humanism. That there is no God, that there are no moral standards, there is no right and wrong, that every man is left of their own feelings to live like you want and believe like you want. And I guarantee you, if you're not getting it in the public school system through high school, a lot of them are. A lot of them are getting it before that. You're going to get it at the university. And I don't care which university flag you're flying. <laughs> okay. If it's a public university, you're going to hear it. So you guys are at the university, listen up for this sort of thing. That's why it's there. It is there. And we need to be careful that we're not influenced and affected by it. There's a blueprint. There is a blueprint, a design, when we talk about the family, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about the home. And the fact is, God originated the home. And, and the people that are humanistic in their thinking, whether they're counselors or sociologists or psychologists or, or behavior scientists, whatever, they don't understand this. Roy Baver, in his book, Marriage and the Family, on page 22, asked a question about the family. And he says this, what is its origin? Just how did this family life come into being? What was its earliest type? What was its prototype? These are questions we cannot answer with certainty. We do not know. Imagine a guy get a PhD and he doesn't know where the family came from. He doesn't know the origin of marriage. But these people don't know that because they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. But Bible believers know, we know that the Lord God said it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. I don't have to go and get a PhD to try to start figuring this out. All you need to do is get a PhD in the Bible and read what the Bible says. The Bible tells us the family is of divine origin. And God made man in the beginning, and he made for him a woman, and he brought the woman and gave her to the man, and God blessed the home, he originated the home, and he ordained the home. 
Jesus put his hand on this, and when he was discussing this issue with the Pharisees, said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? They're not gender neutral. Male and female, and said, for this reason. What reason? You ever thought about that? What's he saying? For this reason. The reason he made them male and female. That's what he's referring to. He made them male. He made them female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, that's the female, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus said, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God originated the home, and Jesus Christ affirmed that fact. Secondly, God not only originated the home, God organized the home. Now, we live in an age of feminism and women's rights and children's rights and easy divorce. And once in a while, you even hear some weird thing where some child is trying to divorce their parents. Who's in control here? What's the structure? How is the home to be organized? Well, the Bible tells us that. Here is the mini version of Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting how in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, just for the record, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about those points because those are the whole sermons right there we'll be discussing, okay, as we get into this series. But I want to tell you right now, this simple passage, if it was really followed, and I'm not talking about the people, the humanists are not going to follow because they scoff at God in the Bible. So I'm not preaching to them, I'm preaching to you and me. Because we think what I've just been quoting from the world is ridiculous and absurd. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, are we following this passage? Are, are we really practicing what Paul wrote here? I want to tell you from my experience of almost 50 years now of people coming to me with questions and problems about their marriage. I wasn't even married yet the first time a couple came to me with marital problems. I went, whoa, I, I don't know about this. And so I've been hearing about it for a long time. But Paul wasn't married either. And so I just went to Paul. You know, if you go to this passage... This will solve a whole bunch of problems. I know it's simplistic or simple. It's actually profound. It's simple and easy to understand. But this right here will solve a whole bunch of our problems if we just follow God's organization of the home. Too many Christians, however, have compromised the truth. And that's why our homes are in trouble. Now, I'm not just going to preach about this and beat you over the head with this. We're going to talk about some practical ways we can apply the truth of this as we get down the road in some of these lessons. But the lessons we'll be bringing are founded. The foundation is going to be in these passages that I'm bringing to you right now. And so then that leads to the third point, that if God originated the home and organized the home, that God has the right to order the home. Doesn't that make sense? And so he can tell a husband in Ephesians 5 to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And so we look at the life of Christ and we see Christ 
self-sacrificing love, and a husband is to have that kind of love. A lot of the problems in the home go back to a lack of love. We started the year with our theme, Love More, Give More, and did nine lessons. I know there were probably a couple of people thought that was a little extreme. I, I thought it was biblical myself. I could have brought 15 because there's 15 qualities there in 1 Corinthians 13. But anyway, so be it. Nine lessons. We did nine lessons on love. And yet we didn't touch the hem of the proverbial garment when it comes to what love is about and how love is to be expressed and how we're to love. The Bible tells a wife to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord? Now you think about that. As unto the Lord? Yes. Now, if we'd follow that, wouldn't that just solve a whole lot of problems today? He tells children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, wouldn't that just solve a lot of problems? If we would look at it in terms of our relationship in the Lord. And Paul calls the God-ordered relationship between husband and wife sound doctrine. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. And in Titus 2, 2 and verse 10. He calls it adorning the doctrine. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Children obey your parents and the Lord. For this is right. God originated the home. He organized the home. And God ordered the home. Now. How do we get started with this? Well, I want to suggest three things. One, I must admit the need for improvement. No one can improve their home unless they admit the need to improve, change, grow, or get better. And I'll go back to the analogy I begin with. I mean, if, if you've had, if your roof's been on the house 30 years and, and you see a, a, a leak, you know, coming down from the roof inside of the wall there, and you call a roof right, he said, man, your roof is shot. You need a new roof. Say, well, I don't think so. I've had that roof for 30 years. It's been a good roof. I'm just not going to spend all that money, $18,000 for a roof. I'll just keep the roof for God. I don't think I need one. You know what's going to happen? You're going to have a lot of water pails all around your house pretty soon because your roof's going to leak. Now, you can not admit there's a need for it, but you've got, you got to realize, i got a problem. i got, I got to fix this. But if you never see the need, you're not going to do anything about it. You know, we're told in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I, I think that some of these passages like this, we look at it in a vacuum. I mean, what does that mean, grow in grace and knowledge? Well, that just means that if I can grow in grace and knowledge enough, I'll never miss another service and put a lot of money in the plate and sing real loud and uh, volunteer for everything the elders want me to do. You know, you could do all those things and not be growing in grace and knowledge at all and have a miserable home life. I think growing in grace and knowledge is the whole person. I think it begins at home. You know, there was an expression years ago, charity begins at home. Well, maybe spirituality begins at home. 
Maybe growing in grace and knowledge begins at home. And to look at that in some kind of a vacuum, I mean, this involves every area in relationship of life. Jesus in Luke 52 talked about how he grew wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. You've got you to admit there is a need for improvement. You know, the, the average young man today knows more either about hunting or fishing or football or his computer or his iPhone than he knows about how to repair a relationship with his wife. And we're not teaching that many times. Secondly, I must accept God's standard. You see, because of individualism, we don't like to take orders, do we? You know, we won't do it our way. And because of secularism, we may not even give much value to the orders that are there. And because of relativism, we may even question whether the orders, even if they were once true, even apply anymore. And so, will we accept the standard of God's Word? And not just look at a passage like this, once again, in a vacuum that applies to how we take the collection and spend it. There's nothing in that passage about the collection. There's nothing in that passage about elders. There's nothing in that passage about the work and worship of the church. It's talking about Scripture and what Scripture is profitable for. Scripture is profitable for doctrine, and I think the translation says teaching, maybe a little better English rendering, for teaching, for teaching about the home, to reprove us, to correct us, to instruct us in right living. So if we accept the standard when it comes to the home, then we will give up any other value system that contradicts the divine standard. And then thirdly, I must pay the price if we're going to improve. Now, again, we come back to our analogy. If you're going to own a home, <laughs> you're, you're going to pay a price, right? I mean, because you're, you're going to have to put a roof on that sucker. Sooner or later, if you keep it long enough, you're going to have to do some repairs. You're going to pay a price. What's the price for home improvement when it comes to our families? Well, it may be effort that you put in to your relationship. It may be the emotional energy that it's you vote your wife and family. There, there's time that is invested. The price of maybe giving up some things that, that you want to do for the good of the family. There's a price of denying personal interest and, and pleasures and pursuits. There may even be the price of money. I've had people come to me sometimes and their marriages, I mean, were a wreck. I had a, when I was living in Kansas City, I had a couple come to me from another congregation. They wanted my advice. They began to tell me. Whew. And I said, you know what? You all need some professional help. And I, I, and I told them about a group where they could go and go to a seminar for the weekend. They could get some help because these people are good at what they do. That's all they do. Now, they're going to have to travel and spend some money. And the price of the seminar wasn't cheap. And they kind of, when I told them what it's going to cost them, and because I'm a member of that organization, I could get them a little discount. I don't get anything out of it, but I could get them a discount if I referred them. And I said, you know what will cost you even more than this seminar? A divorce? I mean, financially, it will cost you more, okay? It'll cost you more financially. More than just the money, it'll cost you emotionally. It'll cost you in your reputation. 
It'll cost you in so many ways. So what's the price? You know, the cost of failure is always higher than the price of success in anything in life. And so what, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to pay the price and do what we need to do? We need to get started. And we start today. And I hope you'll join me in this. And I hope you'll work at playing the things we talk about. See, because when we begin to do some of the things we're going to be talking about in this study, it's going to make a difference. A number of years ago, there was a columnist, uh, Dr. George W. Crane. He was a psychologist, and he, people would write questions into him, and he would answer them. He wrote a lot about relationships and about marriage and home and family and things. And Dr. Crane tell, told the story in one of his columns about a woman that came to him and she said that she was fed up. She said, I want to divorce my husband. And she looked at him and she said, and Dr. Crane, I want to hurt him. What can I do? Well, that took Dr. Crane back a little bit. He thought a moment. He said, well, I'll tell you what you do. You want to hurt him? She said, yes. He said, well, in that case, I advise you to start showering him with compliments. I advise you to become indispensable to him. I advise you to meet his every need and to shower him with love to the point that when he thinks that you love him with such devotion, then start the divorce proceedings. That'll hurt him. She said, I'll just do it. Well, the woman never came back. Some months later, he happened to run into her on the street. And he asked her if she had followed his course of action. And he said, good, good. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're sharing. You can say, now it's time for the divorce. She goes, divorce? She said, I'll never get a divorce. Well, I love him dearly. And Dr. Crane's point in the column was that when we start showing love and displaying the kind of actions and attitudes, then the feeling begins to follow. You may not feel it at the beginning. It may seem a little forced to do some things that I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing that. But the feeling will follow. I hope you'll come back tonight. We're talking about what's a family for. We're going to talk about how to raise kids without raising their blood pressure. <laughs> not tonight, but another lesson. We're going to talk about the seven secrets of marriage. We're going to talk about anger management. We're going to talk about how to deal with some of the emotional issues that come up in our marriage. I hope you'll come back. And I hope we we close our worship this morning. We close with a song that Russ has selected. We haven't addressed the issue of becoming Christian. Maybe a few other lessons and studies you have already determined that and know that you need to make your life right with God. Maybe you're a Christian and you would seek the prayers of the church family here. Maybe you're not a Christian. You favor attendance of baptism. You're not in the blood of Jesus to wash away every sin. You know, you don't become a Christian just so you can have a better